We're going to read two passages tonight in connection with Ascension Day. The first comes from Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, the verses 6 through 11. So when they, that is Jesus and his disciples, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then we turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 to 3, verse 11. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, 
but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. And the text is verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is your favorite time of year? For some of you, it might be Christmas. You love going down to the beach. You love spending time with family. Maybe others feel inspired by Easter and the message of new hope that it brings. And others, again, might be attracted to Pentecost. But how many of us, if we held a survey here tonight, would say that Ascension Day is our favorite time of the year? Why is that? Maybe there's nothing about it that seems inspiring to us. Doesn't have any of the baby in the manger tenderness. None of the new hope of Easter. None of the fire of Pentecost. Ascension Day is always a bit of an orphan in the church calendar. It doesn't get the attention that the other days receive. It seems to be less relevant to our life in some way. Yet the reality of the ascension underlies the command of our text to seek the things that are above. Why do we do that? Because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And the text challenges us to think about how do we live in the interim, how do we live in this time between the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when the sky is almost beginning to rumble with the thunder of impending judgment? The text refers to the moment when Christ is revealed. There's no maybe about that. There's no doubt, no uncertainty. The time for his return has been fixed by the Father 
And it is a year closer now than it was the last time that we celebrated Ascension Day. So how are we to prepare ourselves for the catastrophic, imminent second coming of Jesus Christ? How do we live in a world that lies under his judgment in the meantime? Our text speaks to us quietly tonight, and it tells us to set our mind on things that are above. That's what the ascension teaches us. And it gives us, the text gives us two reasons, because our life is hidden in Christ and because we will appear with Christ. So for us to catch the full meaning of what Paul is saying here, it's helpful to pay attention to the issues that he's addressing. Paul was writing to people in Colossae, which just like Galatia was an area in what we now know as Turkey. And they were challenged by false teachers, but these were not the same teachers as the ones that the Galatians had to deal with. It's a little bit difficult to work out exactly who these false teachers were. Um, a lot of what we know has to be reconstructed from Paul's comments against them through this letter. But one thing is clear, it seems to have been a Jewish mystical movement. Um, the Jewish people were very preoccupied on the end times and uh, preoccupied with angels and demons and the spiritual realm and things like that. And, and there were branches that, that took that really to extremes, and this was apparently one of them. And Paul referred to that in 2 verse 18 of our reading. He referred to those who insist on asceticism and the worship of angels. Asceticism is the practice of denying yourself food and drink and sleep as an exercise in spiritual discipline. And these people were apparently insisting on that. That is, they said, this is a necessary thing for Christians to do if you want to know God. If you want to draw closer to God... This is what you do, and this is what we have done, they said. And when we do these things, then we get visions sometimes. We see things. We see angels. And they thought they could even catch a glimpse of heaven. And anybody who had gone through all of that work to, to get to the point where they had that sort of a spiritual experience would feel... Um, quite a bit more spiritual than someone who did not. And there's something compelling about that, if you think about it. Our ordinary existence seems to be tied so much to the things of this world. You go to school, you go to, wor you go to work, you come home again, you vacuum the floor, you run a load of laundry, same stuff over and over and over. There's a certain mindlessness to life that you cannot avoid. And some people don't mind that. Right? Some people live for, for the here and now. Some people look forward to the end of the school term and going on holidays. And, and um, they're quite okay with that. But other people long for the transcendent. They want to touch that which is divine. And then when someone comes to them and says, look, there's a system to this. We can bring these two worlds together. Well, that's very, very attractive. We're drawn to that like moths to a flame. Wouldn't you do it? Wouldn't you if, you if you knew that there was a way, that there was a method that you could follow, and that if you followed that, that you might see angels, you might see bits and pieces of the life to come? Wouldn't there be a small part of you that would at least be curious 
Now, um, as an example that, um, that people do go for this, consider Mormonism. You have Joseph Smith and his purported visions of the angel Moroni. They started with six people. He had, he said, visions and things like that. And now there's 16 and a half million Mormons. Or the many Roman Catholic mystics. This sort of mysticism, asceticism, and seeing things when you're on your own in the desert. This was a big part of the so-called desert fathers and mothers, the Roman Catholic mystics. Which, interestingly, uh, some of their writings have made their way back into mainstream evangelical Christianity. See, there's nothing new under the sun. And many other examples could be given as well. Now, it takes a lot of work and self-discipline to, to immerse yourself into this sort of thing, this austere spirituality. And, and for that reason, not everybody does it. But we would probably do other things. For instance, what if a church member were to come to you and say that he or she does not feel close to God? What would your response be to that? What would you say? You would probably say, well... You know, you should read your Bible more and pray more. And in and of itself, that answer is not wrong necessarily. I mean, who, who can say that they spend enough time in Bible reading and prayer? Is there ever enough Bible reading and prayer? There's always more that you could do, right? And obviously, the, the corollary of that is true as well, that if you neglect Bible reading and you neglect prayer, then you should not be surprised if you feel removed from God. So on one level, that answer has truth to it. But having said that, we should not think that the act of Bible reading or prayer, no matter how rigorous, is actually what brings us closer to God. It might grow our knowledge of God. It will expand our awareness of God. But there's only one way to actually come close to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And says, Paul says, if you're a believer, you have this already. You've already got this. The way you get to him is not by elbowing your way in among the angels to catch a glimpse of heavenly worship, as the false teachers tried to do. And it's not by using your Bible to evoke a particular mood um, or a spiritual mindset. It is through Jesus Christ. And you don't have to work your way up to him. Instead, he has come down to us. He has united his life with us. And in faith, we experience that. In faith, everything that is his becomes ours. His death becomes ours. And we are made right with God. That's justification. His life becomes ours. And we learn to live for God. Sanctification. A true source of life and communion with God is through Christ. That's what he said to us. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He is our starting point. We do not start with our earthly experience and then try to work our way up. Rather, we, be, we begin by realizing that we are already now united to Christ and that shapes how we live on earth. That's what faith is, isn't it? That, that realization, think of the words of Lord's Day 7. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation. 
out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. That's what faith is. And to believe that, to really truly believe that demands far more of us than merely reading our Bible, praying, and then getting on with our day. It actually requires us to be united with Christ. And none of that comes to us naturally. By nature, we are spiritually dead. Each and every one of us comes into the world without faith. We are spiritually stillborn. That's why Paul prefaces his command in verse 1 with the words, If then you have been raised with Christ. He says, if to be raised with Christ means to be born again. It means to be given a new spiritual birth, which results in a new spiritual life, a new way of life. You're not going to derive any benefit from Christ's ascension if you're not united with him to begin with. You are not able to seek the things that are above if you are still spiritually dead in the world below. So this if at the beginning of our text is, it's a loaded question. And in light of that, we should ask ourselves the question, am I born again? And it is not a question that we're used to asking ourselves, is it? It's um, not in our mind. We don't really um, associate this question with um, Reformed theology, but, but it, is, it is scriptural. It is in Scripture. And, and if you understand these things properly, it is a question we should ask ourselves. It's the most important question you could ever ask yourself. Consider again those words from John 15, verse 5. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that apart from God, you can do nothing? Do you consciously realize that your spiritual life comes from him? Do you, in a world where everybody is dying, do you realize, understand yourself to be someone who has spiritual life? Is faith a driving force in your life, or is it an afterthought? Does faith motivate everything you do? Or do you wedge it in between other things? Romans 6, verse 4, Paul says, We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you walk in newness of life? Is there evidence of the new birth in you? In Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So does Christ live in you? Now you might ask, how can I be sure? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Whoever believes my word, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Do you believe the word of Christ? Do you love him? That's how you know. The spiritual life means you have communion with him. 
You are ultimately shaped into his image. That's what it means to, to live out of that life. That's what it means to be raised with Christ. When you have this spiritual life, you have true communion with him. You have true fellowship with him. Consider again those words from Romans 6 verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That is genuine fellowship. And that is why he also says a few verses later in Romans 6, now that we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So everything that is Christ's is yours as well. When he ascended, a part of you did as well. The real you, the new life that Christ has given, the part that is united to him, the you that will live in the presence of God forever is joined to him. And since he ascended into heaven, there's a way in which a part of you did as well. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 6. He actually says that God raised us up with him, seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ, our head, representatively, we also are seated with him. So that's why you are to seek the things that are above, as our text says. Now we, now we understand this. This is not something outside the realm of our experience, the ascension. This is not something that is far removed from who we really are. This is very close to us. You're seeking for something that is tied to the very ground of your existence as a Christian. That's why he goes on to sharpen the word that he's using. In verse 2, did you see this? There are, are two parallel imperatives here. Um, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and then he sharpens that. Set your minds on things that are above. So, in verse 1, he refers to seeking, which can make it sound like you're looking for something that, that might be disconnected from you. But then to avoid all misunderstanding, he refers um, to the, he refers to it again in verse 2 and he brings out this nuance uh, seeking in the sense of setting your mind on something that's what he means what does it mean to set your mind on something it means to be totally obsessed with it to look for it to desire that more than anything else to search for it intensely to consider it carefully to be totally drawn up into it that's what it means and it's in the present tense. It's ongoing. This is not just emotions. This is a state of being that envelops your whole life. That's then how you read your Bible and pray as well. Listen carefully. When, when you understand this, and then you read your Bible, and then you pray, then you don't do it in anxiety, that you're not saying the right words, or that you're not quite at the right stage then it becomes something totally different. Then it is a, a deep, heartfelt longing for the God who is your life. And you draw close by his invitation. He is the one who called you. Come seek my face, O Lord, so you have spoken. And in response, my heart says earnestly, your face I'll seek, my vow will not be broken. You meant that when you sang it, did you not? 
Your holy courts I yearn to see, faint with desire I long to be, where pilgrims join in celebration. Oh God, we need you. We desire your presence. You own us body and soul. We belong to you. There's nothing that can prevent us from entering into your presence. And for that very reason, we are not to set our mind on things that are on earth. Now, the things that are on earth, um, in context, primarily refer to the rules and regulations that he has been criticizing earlier. All of these artificial um, religious elements that the Colossian false teachers brought into church. He says all that stuff is earthly, this this carrying on, this fasting, this asceticism. But by extension, this principle would apply to all things of the flesh and all people who celebrate them. And that can also give us a clue to our own hearts. If you're still of this world and you're not really born again, then you're going to be primarily interested in the things of this world. You won't be so interested in going where pilgrims join in celebration if your heart's not really in it. But the end of all that is destruction. Paul wrote about that in his letter to the Philippians. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's the alternative. Either you set your mind on things above because you're joined to Christ in faith, or you're not joined to him in faith, and you set your mind on earthly things, and your end is destruction. Are you not disturbed sometimes by the tremendous level of banality in the culture around us? To be banal means to be trite, common, insipid, ordinary, Was there ever an age that is more banal than ours? And it doesn't even have to be banality in the sense of uh, dragging your mind all the way down to the gutter. As long as your mind is not set on things above, Satan is quite happy. You know, maybe, maybe your choice of entertainment is not as crass as the next guy's. But that doesn't matter. As long as your mind is not set on things that are above, Satan is quite content. And banality is all around us. Consider the rubbish that passes for entertainment these days. It is shocking. Or maybe you wouldn't watch that, but you're absolutely devoted to watching sports. That's what gives your life meaning. That is what you talk about. And woe to anyone or anything that comes in between you and your game, even if it's your own kids. Shh, dad's watching. But where's the obedience in that? What we have here on Ascension Day is a command. Two commands. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. That's an imperative. It's a command. It doesn't get any more clear than that. Why? Because here on earth is not where your true life is. You have died, says Paul in verse 3. All of that is part of your old life, your sinful self that was united to Christ and his death. It has no power over you anymore, so you should not give it any power either. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Christ Jesus, he says in Romans 6 verse 11. You are united to Christ. 
Christ died. So you're no longer subject to the judgment that is coming over this world. Because all of, those, all of that banality, it's going up in flames. Not one bit of it will survive the final judgment. So you better make sure that that's not what you're wrapped up in. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are no longer part of this world. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, he says. He died to this world. And that means that you're protected from the judgment coming to this world. And that is a good thing because the judgment is coming over this world. It's certainly coming. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's no doubt about that. But in him you are safe. You are secure in your relationship with God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, he says in our text. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And this hiddenness has um, an element of protection in it. When you hide things, you shelter them, you protect them. We are hidden. Our life is hidden with Christ in God, which is the safest place to be when the final judgment comes over all things. And because it's hidden, others won't see it. In fact, sometimes we may not always see it ourselves. We might struggle with difficulties and doubts and trials, fighting against sins throughout our life. And every time that we doubt, we should go back to the basics. We go back to the ascension. The ascension points us up. It says that's where you belong. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And because our life is hidden with Christ, we will also appear with Christ. We'll consider that next. The last verse. Paul refers to Christ who is your life. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 4. Now, what is he referring to? Um, Christ who is your life. He's referring to the same union with Christ that we saw in verse 1. Christ is the source of our life, so much so that Paul calls him, actually calls him our life. And Paul learned that from Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to Martha before he raised Lazarus from the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Later on, John wrote in his first letter, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So the fact that Christ is our life now explains why we will appear with him at his return. After all, we, were, we died with him, we were buried with him, we are raised with him, so it makes sense that when he appears that that would involve us on some level as well. So what that means is that who we really are in Christ will be evident to all. The Apostle John explains it like this in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 2. He says, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 
our sanctification will be complete. He will transform us. We will bear the image of the man from heaven. We will be like him. We will appear with him in glory, writes Paul. And this glory was hidden at the ascension. There was no fanfare, no angels accompanying him. But when he returns, that will be different. He will return in person, visible to all. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes about that. He writes that Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. It will be a marvelous day for believers when he comes back. We will appear with him in glory. And Peter confirms this in a second letter as well. He writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Can you imagine all of the banality, the triteness, the sin, the wickedness, exposed for what it really is for all to see with the judgment of God over it and no going back. Can you imagine? But he goes on to write, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Are you waiting for that? Are you looking forward to that? Eagerly waiting for him, like it says in Hebrews 9. On that day, the work of Christ in us will be finished, and we will share in his glory, the glory of the Redeemer reflected in the redeemed. Be perfect in every way. What a prospect. We can only respond with the words of the letter of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.